Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, it is the Bill Press Show. Happy holidays. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We are not here. This is on tape. We taped a lot of great content for you while we enjoy our holidays. We hope you enjoy yours as well. It's been a hell of a year, 2018, when you take a look around all of the different news coming out of Congress, not just legislatively, but also you have the midterms, you're going to see a lot of new leadership, and uh, we're going to talk about all of that with two of our favorite congressional reporters. Claire Foran from CNN is in studio with us. Hi, Claire. How are you? I'm good. How are you? And also here is Eliza Collins from USA Today. Thank you both both of you for being here. Of course. What a year. <laughs> been quite a year it's been quite a year so I'll, I'll just start off with something that we saw a couple of weeks ago uh when nancy pelosi and chuck schumer came to the white house to talk to donald trump uh about um funding for the wall and it was really interesting to see how they dealt with each other how they interacted with each other and how nancy pelosi sort of um really asserted her dominance over the situation. Yeah, you could say that was probably the day Nancy Pelosi became speaker. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. they the leader, Democratic leadership aides walked out of that feeling like on fire. They were so proud of her. They felt like they were close to securing the speakership before. Um, obviously, she was making deals with some of these people, her detractors, but... Yeah. That was the moment she had been insisting for a long time that nobody else could negotiate with Trump the way she could. There needed to be a woman in the room. And it was on full display. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really a remarkable moment, like you said, especially the fact that it was televised and it was sort of like you were seeing a preview of, you know, what the next you know, year or so might look like now that we'll have divided control and, you know, the Democrats who've been sidelined will, you know, especially Pelosi particularly will be in much more of a position of prominence. And, and yeah, it was just so remarkable to see, you know, her just kind of walk in there, use this term Trump shutdown, which is in some ways, you know, such a sort of Trump-ish move to kind of come up with that snappy tagline. And then, and then Trump just, just went for it and yeah. just said, okay, I'll, it's, right. yeah, I, I will shut it down. And then it was just, I mean, it was also kind of jaw-dropping moment, too, after being on the Hill for weeks and talking to, you know, Republican senators and kind of asking them, you know, do you want to shut down that kind of thing? And, them, and you know, hearing, you know, Republicans on the Hill don't say they want a shutdown. They say, no, you know, we hope there won't be a shutdown. If there is, it'll be the Democrats' fault. Yeah. And then right. it was just kind of like Trump just gutting well, that. Yeah. Many of them don't try not to watch things like that. Try not to read Trump's tweets so they don't have to answer reporters right. in the hallway. Right. I have had many of them tell me that 
you know, um, sort of on background. But it was a perfect moment because right after Richard Shelby, who is the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, was walking through the Capitol and we went up and said, did you watch it? And he said, no, but I've been briefed. There's blame to go around. And reporters said, no, no, no. The president said that it was him. And um, Richard Shelby was just kind of like, oh, like they just (laughs) they don't know what to make of Trump. And there is fear with Pelosi in particular, but Schumer, too, that those two can get Trump to say and do things that is absolutely not what Republicans want. Well, it's it's really interesting because, you know, even before Trump became president, people talked about one of the things that you can do with Donald Trump is if you meet him with the same aggression that he comes at everybody else with, he usually backs down. Right. I mean, he usually backs down. I, the first real example of this was when he went to Mexico to talk about the wall. Mm-hmm. And he was there in front of the president of Mexico. He didn't bring it up. He didn't bring right. it up at all. He's yeah. he's kind of, he's not as tough as he likes to portray in that sense. And so to actually see two Democrats uh, show their power and assert that in front of him and to watch him... Uh, I don't want to say he backed down because he definitely didn't back down, but he 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 did what they wanted him to do. Well, yeah. I think there's also that Trump likes Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, and no matter even though they were sort of going at it, it was such a difference between the things we've seen with the president and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. They just don't have the same type of rapport. relationship rapport yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. which is so interesting because obviously it was a lot more heated. But I think that he kind of respects people who go toe-to-toe with him, yeah. and Pelosi and Schumer were absolutely doing it. Pelosi was like, fine, bring it up for a bill. You don't have the votes. Like, right. no one talks to the president of the United States like that. And that goes back to Democrats being like, okay, she's got to be the speaker. Well, let's talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi, because uh, I've been very clear on the show. Bill has been very clear. She was the person to be Speaker of the House for the Democrats now that they've taken back the House. That being said, Nancy Pelosi has broken my heart a couple of times, uh, especially in the first two years of Barack Obama's administration when she when she had the same power. Uh, I think a lot of Democrats felt like they were let down. All that being said, um, Ray, you put it best. We were talking earlier. She is a political animal. And for all of the, you know, uh, squishy San Francisco liberal type of uh, stuff that Republicans like to throw at her. She came up in the political machine of Baltimore, right? And so, like, she knows what she's doing. Yeah, Republicans have such a complicated relationship with her because she is helpful to them on the trail for rallying the base. I covered the campaign. I saw it in action. Um, I covered Abigail Spanberger, who is one of the Democrats who will not vote, insists she will not vote for Pelosi on the floor. Um, but Dave Bratt, who was running against her, was basically not running against Abigail Spanberg as a person, but running against her as a Pelosi liberal. It was a red yeah. district. Yeah, they love to just bring Pelosi into right. every race. Yeah. Exactly. But they're terrified of her as a leader. And they yeah. and they, Republicans constantly tell me that she is incredibly good at strategy. I had a Republican the other day that said, hey, game knows game. Like, she is good. But they like her on the campaign trail. They don't like her in leadership. Okay, so on that point about on the campaign trail, she is sort of a boogeyman, boogie person for Republicans. Yeah. But how effective is that? I mean, it's interesting. And, you know, 
you might, Eliza might have a better sense of that depending on how maybe some of the races you watched played out. But it is, you know, I think it's sort of like Republicans have, you know, made her sort of this go-to demonizing figure in kind of a similar-ish way to how when Hillary Clinton was more on the national stage, like she just would get brought into everything and like everything would become about Hillary Clinton. And I do, you, you know, I mean, I... I understand that there's I think some of it is that obviously Pelosi has been around and in power for so long that like when you look at Pelosi, maybe since she's just been, you know, a Democratic leader in the House for a lot longer, for example, than like Chuck Schumer, maybe there is some strategic, you know, maybe voters can recognize that and it sort of like connects better to, oh, this is she's a stand in basically for liberals and for the Democratic Party in a way that maybe Chuck Schumer wouldn't perhaps be because he hasn't been a Democratic Party leader as long. But at the same time, I do also wonder, you know, how much of it is also like she becomes, you know, even more of a target because she's a woman in in power and because she's so it's such a fixation, you know, like in a way that you don't see with, um, you know, other uh, other party leaders like somebody like Schumer. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't. You said Hillary Clinton gets it. Pelosi gets it. Yeah. We're not. We did not see Obama in on the campaign trail this same way. We have not seen Chuck Schumer. Um, and Pelosi's team said that this was about sexism. I was going to say, I wonder why. There was this one um, clip that we had played a long time ago of Paul Ryan on record saying the reason that people, Republicans, needed to go out and vote was so that Nancy Pelosi wouldn't be Speaker of the House. Mm-mm. Right. Well, and right. They, so basically, I mean, I saw that in every that out, race. Right. She will be Speaker of yeah. the House, and he will not be Speaker of yeah. the House. But... um. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating thing because they love her on the campaign trail, but I still do wonder how many people that mobilizes. I think it mobilizes the base, but I don't really think those independent voters, those, you know, female Republicans that voted for a Democrat this time, I don't know if Pelosi had anything to do with them voting for Democrats. Yeah, I yeah, mean, sure. you, could, you could potentially argue. Like, I feel like when I see the way that Pelosi plays such a heavy role in kind of Republican campaign strategy, sometimes I feel like, and, you know, of course, this is a criticism you could make of both parties and both parties make of each other, but I think sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a substitute. Like, what's your proactive, like, positive agenda as opposed to, like, it's it's definitely their go-to move as just sort of like a, here's, like, the thing we're defining ourselves against, and I do wonder, just in general, I mean, I know negative campaigning can be, can definitely be effective but at the same time like i think sometimes republicans lean really heavily on yeah. on that you know democrats do as well so it's not like right both democrats had trump yeah right right well so uh the path to nancy pelosi's speakership this time around involved her saying she would not serve any longer than four years um which i think is a great idea honestly i mean look democrat I, i've said this before I, I guess you could call me a centrist because I think Nancy Pelosi should have become Speaker of the House. But at the same time, I would absolutely love to see younger voices in the leadership, not just Nancy Pelosi, but Jim Clyburn, Sidney Hoyer, Chuck Schumer. All of these people are well into their 70s. And there's got to be a next generation or else we're going to have a real problem here as a party. Well, and that's the whole thing when 
it looks like Pelosi did not have the votes to be speaker. They didn't have anyone else to put forward. Right. Pelosi has very successfully made sure that none of these rising stars, rising leaders have gotten to the point where they could be an obvious choice for speaker. And so which is a problem. And Democrats will say it's a problem. Yeah. Um, and that's the and complaint. That's a problem of Nancy Pelosi. That's a problem of Nancy Pelosi's doing. She she purposely made sure that made her sure that her competition did not rise up. Which look, that's politics, right? right? But now we're at a point where that might have bitten Democrats in the ass a little bit. Well, it worked for Pelosi. It worked yeah, for Pelosi. I mean, right. right. Yeah. Not a, it wasn't a problem for her, but yeah. obviously, yeah, it has created a situation where, and it is kind of, you know. It's, and like you were saying, it's not just Pelosi. It's Pelosi. It's then it's Steny Hoyer and then James Clyburn, and they have really, you know, had this lock on the top yeah. three positions for really quite a long time. And it's interesting to kind of see the reactions of, um, you know, the number two and number three to Pelosi cutting this deal uh, for term limits because you know Hoyer is looks like you know he's not happy about it. And right. I mean, because it you oh, know well right <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's it seems like inevitable in the sense that. Obviously, Democrats are eventually, you know, you can't just have top three forever. But, um, you know, it's just sort of interesting to see those dynamics because I think Pelosi, it seems like she's starting to she's obviously very focused on, you know, being the speaker. But at the same time, she's talked about being a transitional uh, figure. And I think she's starting to kind of look towards the future and kind of the eventual transfer of power. But then. It doesn't seem like somebody like Hoyer is like ready for that, you know. Right, right. And we're seeing Ben Ray Lujan. His title was like deputy speaker, something. They changed it from they put the word speaker there. He is someone Democrats see is rising up. Obviously, Hakeem Jeffries. So there are they are now creating this new bench of Democrats, and that's a complaint Democrats have said not just for leadership, but like looking at the bench for running for president. You know, they're saying it was thin. And we'll see. I mean, there Although, may be 30. Yeah. The thin is the wrong yeah. word. There's a lot of people. But like no obvious choices. Yeah. And part of that is because they have not been able to move up. But I will say with term limits, that is something Republicans really that bit them yeah. in this election cycle because all of these Republicans that had been around for a long time were term limited out of their chairmanships. And so they retired and those seats flipped to Democrats. So that is something that Democrats down the road risk. Yeah. If they do end up passing this rule, it's important to note that in the new year, they still have to pass this rule, but Pelosi said she will abide by it no matter what, which was really the critical part of her securing the votes. Let's talk about the new guard now that we've talked about the the old guard and I guess the current guard. But like looking forward, right, um, when you look at the midterms, uh, it's undeniable, and I'm sure that you both agree with me, that this was a blue wave in the House. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Thanks for the sure we're all on the same page, so we can all read along together. Forty seats. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it was a big win in the House, uh, a, a really huge win in the House, and you've got a lot of new energy representing um, Congress right now. So obviously, there's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think she's probably the marquee uh, star for Democrats in terms of the new Congress, but then you also have a lot of other new people, and I, I want to talk about. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Ayanna Presley uh, mm-hmm. from Massachusetts, she stood up to her own party. Uh, and I want to read some comments that she made because she was speaking to the Democratic National Committee 
about a crowd of 300 people, and she says uh, that she is there to push for a Democratic Party, quote, where the marginalized and vulnerable are centered. And she says, quote, many times during the election in church basements, bodegas, living rooms, restaurants, I would ask my constituents, my supporters, my skeptics, and my fellow Democrats, are we really who we say we are? And saying that for years, Democrats have abandoned those people, uh, marginalized uh, and vulnerable, and that this is now a time to pick that up and to win those voters back, bring them back into the Democratic Party, which I think is such an important message that so many, especially established Democrats, have have missed for years. So what is that going to look like with people that feel this way coming into the Democratic Party in the new Congress? Yeah, I mean, I'm really fascinated to just see how the dynamic plays out with a lot of these incoming freshmen members who, you know, some of them haven't, like, you know, take somebody like uh, Ocasio-Cortez, hasn't served in office before, is, you know, doesn't sort of owe any loyalty to kind of the quote-unquote party establishment in the way she ran her race and, and won. And, and then, you know, seeing her take that action of, um, you know, joining activists in like a sit-in in Pelosi's office. I mean, I was just kind of wondering, like, is this a preview of like, is this what like, will this in some ways be a new normal or is this like an opening kind of, you know, sort of setting the tone like I can do this, but let's work together. You know, I'm I'm really curious, just like it's it's you know, I just felt like it was very unusual to see something like that happen. And it's like you're actually covering an incoming member yeah. who's joining the this protest. Right. And so I just think, like, you know, what's what's the dynamic going to be like in a very like day to day sense? Like, is it going to be, you know, obviously they'll be bringing a lot of new energy and new ideas, but also like how are they just how are they going to work with you know, the existing kind of party leaders and, like, are they going to get along? Like, is, how how much will there be clashes and sort of wanting to do things differently? And I think it'll be really interesting to see mm-hmm. that unfold. Yeah. Well, Democrats won back the House because they flipped red and purple districts. Yeah. They didn't flip the Ocasio-Cortez. Right, right, And right, right, right. I think that those Democrats, as vocal as they are, as much attention as they're getting— and as good as that message might be, are going to run into a wall with this group of new members that are much, much more vulnerable and need to be protected by their leadership. Sure. Um, I do think the message coming from this incoming group was that people have been forgotten. I think it's just different types of people. Sure. So you see Sherry Bustos, who's the incoming head of the Democratic Campaign Congressional Committee, and she is from a Trump district in yep. the Midwest. And Frequent she, guest on the show. Yes. Just have to point that out. And she has a completely different message than the Ocasio-Cortez, but both are trying to expand the party. Yep. And so I'm curious sort of who ends up getting brought in. But that was, that was Trump's message in 2016. Here's he, the answer. Here's the answer. All of them. Right. Like the forgotten rural voter that Democrats, I mean, look, Democrats completely turned their back on rural voters. They just have over the years. And, and, and it wasn't just Hillary Clinton. It goes way back. This has been going on for generations now. Democrats just completely forgot about rural voters. And I'll never, ever, ever forget when I heard Chuck Schumer in 2016 say that the strategy for winning Pennsylvania 
was to just focus on the cities. Forget about all the other stuff. We're just going to flip all of these former these people who used to vote Republican, and now they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Are you kidding me? Well, and that's, that's a horrible idea. That's where Bustos will be helpful. Yes. Because even, even with this wave uh, in 2018, the rural areas got redder. Yes. The suburban areas got bluer, and there was flips. But Democrats did not do well in rural areas. And so someone like Bustos, who comes from the Midwest, who comes from that type of district, will come in as a voice on that. And strategy for going into 2020. Yeah. I mean, those voters are important, and so are the minorities uh, uh, that, that you know, Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, everybody else is representing. They are just as important. Yeah. And I was just going to add, though, I do still think, you know, just kind of seeing how much sort of the, to Eliza's point about, there's a lot of Democrats that won and flipped seats that you know, will be coming in as sort of more moderate, more centrist because they were in red to blue districts. But then I do think they'll, you know, you'll still continue to see the battle play out between sort of which direction should the party go in in terms of policy proposals and platforms. And to your point, you know, I mean, because progressives also want to win rural areas. But when you talk to somebody like Bernie Sanders, you know, he he talks about that. And, and but it's, you know, his, you know, proposal is we need to support progressive ideas and these are things yeah. that could resonate in red areas now I think you know so even though that's something that I think Democrats will be continuing to look towards I think there'll still be that tension let's talk about uh, some legislation from 2018 not a super productive year not a super productive year right I think that's maybe an understatement though at the very end they pulled off some big bipartisan wins yes. that that really were significant let's talk about those uh, <laughs> let, let's let, let's focus on the positive uh, I want to start with the sexual harassment uh, legislation which has been promised for years now uh, out of the Congress uh, but we finally got something done uh, and it was bipartisan and give, give me some of the details about that well, I mean, so, you know, in terms of kind of the overview, the House and the Senate had previously passed bills, but it was the key. The key issue was just that they couldn't, you know, they were really having trouble kind of resolving and coming up with an agreement between the two sides. And it really seemed like it was just totally kind of languishing for like a really long time. And I I was, I mean, you know, I hadn't been tracking it as closely, but I had covered, um, you know, not too long before the end of the Congress, sort of a last-ditch effort, like a letter sent by advocates just saying, like, time is running out. And, like, at that point, we, we wrote a story about that, and, like, it wasn't in the news at all. And, like, I did wonder, like, is this going to come together? And then sort of at the last minute, they were able to to strike a deal um, saying that they uh, could agree and, and the House and Senate can agree on something. So that's obviously a major breakthrough. Well, and this came out of Me Too movement. Yes. Um. So back in 2017, there was all of this looking at members who had paid off people, you know, all of these stories of sexual harassment, members of Congress who were still there. I, I just have to say, right, of all the Me Too stories that came out, and there were some a lot of disgusting ones that came out about personal behavior, but the fact that here in Washington, D.C., in the Congress, they were doing that same behavior, and then there was a whole system in place to help them cover it up. Right. With taxpayer, with right. taxpayer, taxpayer dollars. Money. And is they were still astounding. Some of them are still 
there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So there was, they started looking at like the reporting process and the different way people could be paid off. And people in both parties, to their credit, said this is absolutely not okay. They hashed it out. The House very easily um, passed changes. And then it just sort of sat there in the yeah. Senate. And then as Claire said, like, finally they were able to hash it out. Um, but it was one of those things that was really just embarrassing for Congress because mm-hmm. especially how bipartisan it was. Um, the House the House has sent over a lot of bills that have just sat at the Senate, and a lot of them are very partisan and totally messaging bills. This was not one of them. Right. And, I mean, we saw all of the women in the Senate come together with, like, letters and pressure on McConnell to bring it up, and it just was sitting there. And it was, like, little technical things that ended up getting hashed out, but... So let me let me just ask you a quick question. Why didn't Mitch McConnell take this up sooner? I mean, I don't know that, you know, I think that it just seemed like with the difference, I mean, the bills were, you know, in, like obviously they sort of had the same sentiment behind them, but sure. they really, um, I think that the House bill had sort of gone further in various ways than the Senate bill. And I mean, it just so, you know, McConnell doesn't like to bring up bills that seem like they're going to divide the caucus. But, you know, I as far as like what the whip count and that kind of thing is, it, yeah. it does seem like, you know, who's going to who wants to like vote against a bill like that. But I mean, I guess I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, honestly, it just to me, like from sort of a big picture view, it just didn't really seem like it was being prioritized. Like right. it didn't seem like anybody was actively like against it or like had any but it just seemed like you know they kind of wanted to be like they sort of made the initial effort both chambers did feel like enough pressure that they had to kind of take the first step of passing something but then just like then for just so long they were just saying like oh we're trying to negotiate a compromise but just did not look like there was like any movement and it just was hard to see that it was being prioritized as sort of like how I saw it playing out. Well, I think when the House sent over the bill originally, and this was a while ago, so I don't remember exactly, but McConnell's team was saying that there was some sort of loophole in there that could make it related to not sexual harassment, but something that could make members have to pay for something related to discrimination or a different part. Um, I don't remember all the details, but I remember it being something that was sort of a technical loophole that McConnell's team was pointing to as reason that things couldn't move forward, but then it just sat there. And we saw that with criminal justice reform. McConnell is incredibly powerful. He decides what goes on the floor, and he can make or break legislation whether or not it has bipartisan support. I mean, criminal justice reform easily passed out of the House in the spring. In the fall, it had the support of the White House. It had the support of some of the most liberal Democrats. And McConnell didn't like it and just kept it off the floor for a really long time until finally coming around to bringing it up in early December. Yeah. It's crazy to me. I mean, it's just crazy to me at how uh, Mitch McConnell has been the gatekeeper here and and has kept so much legislation off the table. Although I will say, and, and that's absolutely true. I mean, he, you know, McConnell... I only say things that are very true. <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, whoever is... The majority leader and and the House Speaker, you know, they decide essentially, you know, if a bill comes to the floor. And that's completely true. And McConnell has enormous power in that respect. But I just will say it was interesting to see at in Oslo in early December just that 
it really did not look like the criminal justice bill was going to come up. And then right. suddenly you have Trump kind of like unleashing like on Twitter saying like McConnell needs to bring it up. And then I just, you know, I don't know exactly how that played out behind the scenes. And obviously there's a lot of Republicans that would like him to bring it up. But it did seem like that sort of flipped some kind of a switch where like maybe he just felt like I just need to bring it up. Yeah. Because it was just the public pressure, which yeah. was sort of interesting to see. Well, we were we've been reporting on that about kind of what did happen behind the scenes. And Jared Kushner has been involved in this from the very beginning because his dad went to prison, and that became sort of his issue. Um, <laughs> and if only we all had you know that that type <laughs> so. of push to get things done. So he was working God. with Democrats and Republicans in the House for a long time. They passed that bill, um, and by the end, by the time McConnell came around. I was told the whip count they expected to be around like close to 80. But they flipped some people at the very end that had been really adamantly against it. Ted Cruz, David Perdue, um, some conservative members. They made some tweaks that got those people on board. Again, technical tweaks, tweaks, though they did narrow the number of people that could get certain assistance. But I was told by Democrats and Republicans it didn't seem like it was going to be a significant narrowing, but it was enough that the conservatives could get on board. Kushner's been there the whole time. Pence has been coming to the Hill. Nothing was happening. Trump did do those tweets. I think that absolutely helped. Um, And then the number just became, it was like so many people. Trump was on board. It looked bad for McConnell yeah. to not. It was public pressure. He had to, basically. Right. December was a weird month for McConnell because he's had such a tight grip on the caucus for so long, but we saw a few different things. We saw the criminal justice reform bill play out. We saw the Senate move forward curbing powers in Yemen. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then we've seen Jeff Flake hold up judges over a bill to protect the special counsel, mm-hmm. and judges are McConnell's favorite thing. I mean, that is his legacy that his... and. Jeff Flake used procedural things in the Senate to try to push for something he wanted. And it's just interesting to see McConnell, who has been so powerful, not that he like spiraled out of losing power, but just that people started to use the Senate procedure to their advantage to start to move things in a certain way. So uh, last topic before we have to go, Uh, this new Congress is coming in. there's a lot of stuff that they want to tackle. Yeah. Uh, will impeachment be one of them? There's certainly pressure for impeachment. Um, right now, Democratic leadership says they do not want to do that. But we are starting to see, you know, with Michael Cohen um, being sentenced to prison for three years, with the president being directly implicated in Cohen's yeah. sentencing, saying that Michael Cohen committed crimes at the direction of the president of the United States. We saw Jerry Nadler, who will be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, which is the committee charged with deciding on impeachment, saying that that did qualify for impeachment, which was very significant. But then he kind of was like, but but we're not sure if we're going to do that. No, I thought that quote was just like the perfect encapsulation of like the weird position that Democrats are in. Because on the one hand, it's like if you acknowledge that it like qualified, then like like, how can you, like, say that, but then, like, not take right. that step? And, at the, and on the one hand, like, of course Democrats want to, like, seize on and, like, highlight just how bad they think things have gotten. But then at the same time, like, to then kind of pivot and say, like, but, like, 
you know, that doesn't mean we're going to do that. Like, also, like, really highlights the fact that it's just like, well, one, I just think there's so much, there's a lot of pressure on Democrats. It's like they're finally getting, you know, back some power after yeah. being totally, like, frozen out. Yeah for like the last two years and it's like what are they going to do with it and it's like you know obviously there's a lot of pressure from the base and and then like mounting you know sort of potential reasons that they could pursue impeachment that are going to be really difficult to ignore um but then at the same time it's like that's going to be well it's like there's not going to be the votes in the senate no matter what so you're you're engaging on like an extremely divisive and extremely like totally upheaval type of thing that's just going to like throw Washington into chaos and no matter what happens like it's not actually going to remove him from office because no no votes in the Senate for that and um so I just think that's and then yeah like so Democratic Party leaders have been kind of tamping down on that uh so I just think it's like almost like a rock and a hard place on that because it's just like the correct answer is it's a pipe dream it's a pipe dream right for right now I mean look Robert Mueller's report might come out and have some very, very, very damning stuff in it. But again, as you pointed out, it's not going to happen in the Senate. Where Republicans expanded their majority, I think we, we didn't. Did. Yeah. We talked about the wave in the House. Yes, we should they did. narrowly, but they did expand they did. it in the Senate. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely true. Uh, so they're, they're just, it's just not going to happen in the Senate, right? And so, do you really want to waste time with something like this? Yeah, and like, I, look, I'd I, love to see Donald Trump get impeached. Just on a personal note, like it would be awesome to see that happen. But uh, it just, I just, it, let's be realists here. Yeah, and the thing is, the more time that's spent on that, the more like yep. that's anytime you like anything that goes down that route, that's going to take up all the oxygen. So then you're basically like, sure, they can say like we could do both, but like it's just going to be really hard to you know outline your like this is our policy right. platform. Like if you're talking about impeachment and I think just to like again like kind of put a point on it like I I was getting coffee with like a Democratic Hill aide um, you know well before the midterms and they said they said to me like they were like I almost hope we don't take the house and I was like why and they were like because because then like we'll just have to figure out the impeachment question and like that's just like a huge it's just like a big headache basically like to like deal with that and try to navigate like if that's like pressure on all sides in both like that kind of thing and look you could be an effective congress while also not going through with the impeachment stuff and i think democrats the democratic base will accept that and it'll be fine well democrats won not on impeachment they avoided it at all costs they won on health care they won on making washington work and they won on bipartisanship right a lot of these democrats that won in red states promise to work across the aisle something like impeachment would be so divisive and make it really hard to move forward on lowering drug prices or infrastructure or things that could actually be bipartisan yeah but one thing that i think is interesting too is like if democrats do try to take that you know going back to the nadler quote of sort of like yes this qualifies but that doesn't mean we're gonna pursue it it's like i almost wonder you know a lot of what we're seeing with this administration it's like we're in really uncharted like uncharted territory and like if we like if democrats like sort of allow that to become a precedent too where it's like you don't pursue impeachment even when like we have certain like depending on what happens like i just wonder too what what does that do you know just in terms of the message it sends yeah and with that territory and with that yeah we are definitely in new territory here with that we'll have to say farewell uh, Claire Foran from CNN, Eliza Collins from USA Today. Thank you both so very much for being here with us. We will talk to you both in the new year for sure. There will be some very exciting times ahead. 
I promise. Thank you, thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow with some more holiday programming. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 